Lawton. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, still, of course, taping off-site, uh, but nevertheless, still very much here with, uh, of course, Left, Lefter, Leftist, that show. And we have, as always, Alex Grant, editor at Fight Back, on the panel, and today, Andrew Houston, who's journalist, uh, ex-columnist at Extra, among many other publications, and uh, a previous guest on the show as well. So welcome back, Andrea. Hello, thanks for having me. So um, that was the month that was. What a crazy, what a crazy-ass month that was. <laughs> so let's talk with what seems to be on everybody's mind, and especially yours, I'm sure, Alex, because you're a parent with kids of school age, is the going back to school in the midst of COVID. Talk to us, Alex. Tell us what that's like. Parents are very afraid and conflicted because I, it's, it's a total game of Russian roulette. They're opening up the schools with uh, 27 children in a class. That's double what there should be. Uh, my son's in a class of 27. And I'm, you know, when we're crossing our fingers and hoping it won't, won't turn out badly. Uh, but who knows? But at the same time... And kids, just how old is your son, just so listeners know? Uh, he's 11. He's in grade six. And all those 27 kids have shown up? Are they showing yep. up? Oh, really? Well, wow. they, they, so people were thinking, okay, some parents would opt out and have their kids in online and that would lower the class sizes. Nope, that's not what happened. As kids move from in-class to online, they've actually been shutting down emerging classes to make sure they've got high class sizes. It's utterly ridiculous because now they've actually got the physical space in the schools to space uh, children out, but they're not paying the money for the teachers uh, uh, because they're saving the money. It's, it's utterly irresponsible that uh, it, they could just provide the money for the teachers. There is the physical space once you've taken all the people online, uh, but they're not doing it. This is, outrageous um i mean behind this i can't help but see the 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 specter of privatization i mean people with money mm -hmm. um children with special needs are going to be taking their kids out of the public system and putting them in learning pods and sending them to private school at uh out there in case you don't know at twenty-five thousand plus a year um I mean, this is clearly what's going to happen. Uh, what, yeah, I mean, what's that for? What are OSSTF saying, Alex? Yeah, what's well, I think they appealed it to the Labour Board. I, I didn't hear what the result was at the Labour Board. Maybe, maybe the Labour Board didn't have a ruling. But unfortunately, I, I don't think they've done anything beyond appealing it to the Labour Board when, when in fact there needs to be mass uh, right to refuse unsafe work. That, and, and, and if they did that, they'd have full support of the parents. And uh, hopefully that would be enough leverage to get those class sizes down to 15. Uh, I also just heard a, a new thing that's come out. They've changed the, uh, uh, the parental care uh, guidelines. If you're a teacher or if you're a school staff and one of your kids is ill and a possible case of COVID, you're supposed to still come into work. That is not a reason to stay home from work. So there could be family sickness. And unless you've got a positive COVID test, which are now delayed, you're supposed to still come into work. And you could only stay home if you take it off your holiday days. It's, it's utterly scandalous. 
So Andrea, way in here, uh, you witnessed some of what Queen's Park was doing around this issue. I know recently there was a vote there. Um, of course, the Conservative Party voted against having class sizes of 15 or less. Um, uh, what's your take on all of this? just absurd like it's absurd that we're, we're even having this conversation still you know in, in a in a in a world that we envision people value children and value young people and value uh their lives and their health that would be the first priority for a government to ensure that the class sizes were small enough and even going further like you know maybe i've seen you know historical um articles talking about for, you know past pandemics where they held classes outside and and you know there was a lot more done um, entire um, television stations were taken over for educational programming. So for people who don't, like back when, when there was no internet, kids could still learn. Why aren't we doing that with TVO? TVO could be, could be tapped to have some kind of a um, educational programming during the day to have more kids stay at home. Um, I just, I, I see this government, um, and I'm sure you agree that, you know, cares far more about um, businesses, landlords, developers, making money, um, finding ways to penny pinch and save as much money as you can, literally by throwing bodies at this. And, and that's what we are doing. They're sacri I, mean, I don't have kids myself, but I can't even imagine, you know, the stress, the anguish, uh, and the anxiety that, that families are going through right now, especially families who don't have the money to be able to, you know, pay for learning pods or, or you know, the most, um, you know, tutors to, 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 to um, give your children uh, private homeschooling. I mean, you know, the, the inequity and the inequality of this, of this government um, is, is, is ghastly and it's, and it's absurd from every way you look at it. Absolutely agreed across the board. Um, I, I went out and got tested the other day and I waited for just over three hours and I was there an hour early before the testing center opened um, to get my test. I'm negative, hallelujah. But I mean, it was just a, a ridiculous. Um, these lineups are happening around the city when we're now clearly in a second wave. I mean, the cases today were significantly up from the last few days. So if you want to get tested, good luck. You have to take a day off work. Uh, and, you know, just to Alex's and other parents' predicaments, I mean, people don't have the options, many of them, of taking a day off work to do any of this, to look after your children, to go get okay. tested. Um, and this is a complete recipe for disaster. Uh, I mean, again, like, you know, Andrea, you worked with me, um, uh, you know, full disclosure, Andrea was my executive assistant for a year when I was still in politics at Queen's Park. I, I, I mean, Christine Elliott, the Minister of Health, signed on to some of our queer bills. I look at what she's doing now and I'm thinking, even as a conservative, clearly ideologically, we didn't agree on anything, but, but I mean, just as a human being, like, yeah. how can you make these calls? I mean, does this floor you? I mean, I'm shocked by the folk that we've worked with in, in other parties and their, their actions. Shocked. Oh, absolutely. I, I wonder how they sleep at night. Uh, you know, knowing, knowing what they know, and they probably know a lot more than, than, than we know. Uh, obviously, they know a lot more than we know. Um, how do they sleep at night? How do they, how do they look their children in the, in the eyes? How do they, how do they look their, their constituents in the eyes and, and, and tell these lies right to their 
face is, is absolutely shocking. And we see that, you know, the, the general, um, you know, feeling throughout most MPPs, who, even the ones who aren't actively trying to, to make this situation even more uh, dangerous for people, but they're just not saying anything. Like people, like, they're not doing what they should be doing, raising hell, you know, sitting down and not ref like refusing to leave. Like there's so many things that they could be doing within the legislature um, that isn't happening. Um, you know, th these are these are children's lives that are on the line. Um, and as you said, we're, we're in a second wave or the first wave just hasn't ended yet. Um, we are in a global pandemic and we're acting like this is just a common cold. Um, this is this is serious and we don't know the long term effects of COVID. We are playing with fire, you know, with allowing children to be exposed educators you know teachers these are these are people who uh, educate our children and, and we're acting like this is just the snipples and it, it's it's ridiculous and alice to go back to you um, there's also the issue at the other end of life and long-term care um where the the earlier outbreaks were just uh absurd and horrendous and killed a lot of people in fact the vast majority of the early stats were uh, folk from long-term care and nothing as much has changed there I mean, nothing much has changed. Now they're having a commission on it. I think I tweeted out and I said, listen, you know, save yourselves whatever money they're spending a quarter of a million dollars on the commission and um, give it to front, you know, frontline workers. Here, here are the results. The government doesn't care and privatization is killing people. But weigh in, Alex, what do you think? Well, actually, care? yeah, commission is a good word to say that you're doing nothing. You're punting it into long grass and hoping everybody forgets about it. And, and actually, it's, it's not just that. They're, they're actively insulting the workers in these workplaces who are massively overworked, and um, they're withholding the hero pay, large amount, and they're resisting the calls to take them back into public ownership. That it's overwhelmingly the privatized mm -hmm. uh, profiteering uh, of old folks' homes that have the worst outbreaks because they're cutting corners, they're uh, relying upon um, sort of staffing that moves around and the worst conditions. So it needs to be renationalized, taken back into control and properly funded with uh, staff that don't have to go to numerous different uh, institutions in order to pay their rent. But to admit that, yes, go ahead, Andrew. I was yes. just going to say, to admit that would meet, would have to be admitting that privatization causes inequality, mm -hmm. or is at the root of inequality. And I don't think that they're they're pr frankly prepared to admit that. They'd rather see these effective concentration cramp camps for elderly people, um, and you know, blame it on unions, blame it on blame it on the workers, blame it on the family members, blame it on anybody but them. Absolutely. I mean, certainly the, uh, the Toronto, Toronto Sun came out with a headline blaming the educational crisis on the teachers unions. They just yeah. flat out came out and said it. Um, to get back to, to long-term care, I mean, uh, the other thing that people aren't perhaps aware of, unless you know somebody in long-term care, is it's expensive. Mm -hmm. this, these privatized places are expensive and some of it's up to $9,000 a month to be in long-term care in, in the high-risk, high-care wow. areas. Um, 3000 and up. Um, for you know the so-called subsidized uh, spaces, so these are not cheap. These are not free, um, and 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 people are still paying every month, watching this go on with their loved ones, uh, and only now some of them being able to see some of them, um, and it's still making exorbitant profits. Throughout COVID, they've still been making exorbitant profits. Um, Alex, you wanted to jump in. 
Well, the, this is incredibly short-sighted, even just from a capitalist perspective, that they're trying to keep everything open for the economy. But statistics show that the countries with the worst COVID out, uh, that have done the least mitigation for COVID, supposedly for the health of the economy, are the ones with the worst economic outcomes because people don't like getting sick, funnily enough. And when uh, thousands and thousands of millions of people in the United States get sick, then, uh, that, then that ruins the economy. So sh shutting it down earlier actually is the sensible economic thing to do. We're, you know, we're at the be beginning of a new wave. It, yeah, it was 401 in Ontario today. That's double what it was a week ago. Are we going to wait another week before it's 800 and then 1600 and then 3200, right? When are they going to shut things down, go back to stage two or even earlier because to actually limit this doubling or, yeah, that's going to utterly destroy the economy, uh, notwithstanding people, which are obviously more important than the economy. That's, that's, that, yeah. I was just going to yeah. say that, that that's that is neoliberalism, right? With like the, the the message from uh, the message from this government, uh, both both at the provincial level and the federal level, um, is resist locking down at all costs. We have to prevent you know any damage on the economy. Um, and and what they don't obviously say is even if that means more lives being lost. Um, but the economy, it, it crystal clear, is their mo their top priority, which isn't that much different than the messages from Trump and Pence and Bill Barr, uh, where we get, you know, yesterday we had Bill Barr comparing a lockdown to slavery. Um, you know, even though th these are absurd statements, even though it's, you know, we're not hearing the absurdity come out of Trudeau's mouth or, you know, to a much lesser degree, uh, uh, Doug Ford's mouth, but the message ultimately is the same, right? Humans, human life, human dignity takes a backseat to the economy. That is ultimately the message from both governments, but you just have a difference between fascism and neoliberalism. That's the difference. Um, yeah, and interestingly enough, in terms of the economy, I guess the question always is whose economy? Because yeah. uh, even using conservative uh, rhetoric and, um, and reasoning, um, the, the reality is small business is collapsing. Um, really, the businesses we're talking about are big businesses, yep. big businesses that need um, workers to work for minimum wage and risk their lives. These are the people that the conservative government is, is working for um, in terms of keeping the economy open. It's not your corner store. So, I mean, this is, this is also true. Um, uh, and, and of course, uh, yeah, and, and what, the, the daily stats drive me crazy. I mean, the, the daily stats are ridiculous. I mean, other jurisdictions in the world are shutting down whole areas um, and in even whole countries, you know, for stats that are less than us per capita. Mm -hmm. But the way that we're reporting it is not thousands per week. It's, you know, so many per day. So it is kind of a, a, a false, uh, false information there. Um, by the way, if you've just tuned in and you're listening to this uh, left, left, or leftist ranting, you are in the right place. You're listening to the Radical Reverend Show, and it is the left, left, or leftist show. Um, and of course, we've been talking about COVID, um, which is on everyone's mind. It can't help 
but be. And now we know that this is going to be a situation into 2022, probably, as it wings its way around the world. Alex, before we leave this topic and get on to something else, vaccines, answers to COVID, weigh in on that. Well, it's not guaranteed. And uh, so who, you know, we all know there's the flu vaccine and that's not fully effective. So there should be all the research possible into vaccines. One other scandal is the uh, secretive uh, private uh, investigation of vaccines. If there was any time in human history to pull the resources of the planet and of the intelligence of scientists and everything, it is now. Right. They, they try to create a scandal of Russians are hacking our Canadian vaccine research. Why do Russians have to hack the Canadian vaccine research? It should be in the public domain. Everybody should be sharing all of this information to produce the best, best vaccine in the shortest possible time. But because they're trying to profit, they're trying to profit. They, the pharmaceutical companies want to make billions off the misery of the human race it should all be nationalized actually much of the basic research is done in publicly funded universities why should these pharmaceutical companies profit and why should it be secret That's so we point. need to get that vaccine as soon as possible but at the same time there's no guarantee that it will be a magic bullet or, or if it will be distributed equitably around the yeah. world, you know, we, I mean, we, we see in parts of the world uh, where HIV still ravages uh, communities, they can't get the, they can't get a, a vaccine, uh, they can't get PrEP and they can't get treatment for, for HIV. So I'm, you know, extremely skeptical that we are going to administer equitably this vaccine when it comes. And by the way, if you're tuning in, you're listening to our panelists today, Andrew Houston, activist, journalist, and Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back, um, and uh, our regular panelist on the show. I didn't put this out as a topic, but hey, I'm gonna, we're agreeing too much. Let's see if we can get uh, some debate going. <laughs> um, let's talk about um, what has been proposed uh, by the federal NDP, seems to be being taken up by the liberals now, which is universal basic income or guaranteed mm. annual income, depending on who you, you speak to. Is this a good thing? Um, what about it, Alex, weigh in. Well, there's a lot of problems with uh, UBI. That uh, one, of the, one of the problems is that it's often funded by cutting social services. Uh, another, another problem, it ignores the question of ownership. Because, okay, you give people, well, CERB was $2,000 a month. Well, that money is, spends about three seconds in the hands of working class people before it goes to Galen Weston for Loblaws and to the landlord and to, to, to all the other portions of the capitalist class. It's not a solution. It's not a solution. And eventually somebody will be forced to pay. And the... On the one side, while you're getting sort of various survival handouts, which they're trying to victimize poor people over, they, there's 10 times more bailouts to big business. That there's like $750 billion of a secret bailout fund. They're not revealing who this is going to. Uh, that's 10 times the amount of CERB or anything equivalent. And eventually somebody will be forced to pay. And so, I, so We've been saying no bailouts, only nationalizations. This needs to be run 
under public ownership, workers' control, production for need and not for profit. But just to problematize it a little bit, um, people who are coming off CERB are falling off a cliff um, if they don't have work. Um, so, and, and surely it makes some sense to at least have a basis beyond, be, beyond which people cannot fall um, that will at least pay the rent and put some food in their mouths rather than have people sleeping on the street. I hear you, I hear that it goes to the landlord, I hear that it goes to groceries, it's no way to live. It's not enough for sure, but, but nothing is not enough either. Andrea, what about universal basic income or guaranteed annual income? I, I agree with both of you, actually. I, I think that, I think that uh, I'm very much in favor of a, of a basic income, almost a people's bailout. Like we deserve to, to have a, a, essentially what we, des what we are owed, all the, all the unpaid labor that we have put in, all the, you know, not just through the pandemic, but generally we should have a basic income but you're absolutely right alex that you know most often this comes by clawing back social services and reducing our social safety net so obviously i'm, I'm vehemently opposed to doing that you know we need things desperately like universal child care we need you know we need um we need to strengthen our social safety net for people especially for women especially for marginalized people living uh living below the poverty line but as sherry said you know people are ready to fall off a cliff right we have to you know there we can't see the you know the tidal wave of evictions that has already started um and uh, with serb ending next month and currently there's no extension proposed or at least on paper um that uh, i i you know this is life this would be life-saving for people but you know i think that generally i think that there should be a basic income in canada we are a wealthy nation we are a wealthy country with with a growing number of billionaires who don't pay taxes who don't pay income enough their fair share of income taxes and actually actively hide their money on offshore accounts in in cayman islands and elsewhere including our prime minister uh was on that list you know many people have forgotten about the panama papers and the and the paradise papers so many canadians named on that and so we need to have a serious talk about how are we going to basically seize their wealth you know they we can't have billionaires making profits during a pandemic while people are starving to death. While there are people living in parks and tents and, and you know, with, with increased funding for police to buy tanks, you know, to attack climate activists and indigenous, push indigenous activists off their land. You know, we need, we need a basic income to, you know, at least provide the safety for people to, you know, to get through these next year, possibly couple years of a pandemic. So Andrea, you, you gave, uh, provided me with a good segue into the next uh, topic. Um, let's talk, uh, continuing to talk about the continuing uprising um, throughout North America, you know, spurred uh, by police violence against uh, both indigenous and uh, people of color and uh, black people. Um, I'm, I'm thinking here, I mean, a, a couple of weeks back, I had uh, a spokesperson uh, First Nations Mohawk from 1492 Landback Lane. There's an occupation going on as we speak that got brief coverage by the mainstream media, but not nearly enough. So uh, again, this is happening under our noses right here in Ontario. Um, it's going on. The pushback, of course, I got um, on social media when I talked about tanks and this is the wrong way to go um, was was phenomenal and, and and actually kind of funny because Andrea, you were at Queen's Park when we were working so hard to get um, uh, PTSD coverage for first responders 
Um, and I'm thinking, I worked hard for you folk, and now I'm getting attacked for saying, stop militarizing, you know, start defunding. Anyway, enough of that. But I mean, why, I, I, let's, let's start here. I mean, some 19 and counting cities in the U.S., have actually at the municipal level um, done something about defunding police um, and refunding social services. And yet, I don't know of any Canadian city that's done anything. Our own city council tried to defund by 10% and said it ended up giving them more money for body cameras. I mean, what is happening in Canada? Alex, I'm going to throw it to you first that we can't do the minimum that we've been asked to do by thousands of people in the streets. Well, the key issue is the working class. The key issue is organized labor. That sadly, the, the unions have been mostly absent from this. Uh, some of them, I think the OFL have made some uh, good uh, statements, but in terms of on the ground, uh, prioritize, you know, using working class methods, that pe people need to be talking about strikes. Hey, the, the, if the NBA, you know, the, uh, the most exploited section of the working class is the, uh, the National Basketball Association, obviously, that uh, <laughs> if they can go on strike, then, and, and, and there's a scholars strike, uh, uh, I think, I don't know whether it happened or it's going yeah, to happen. Yeah, no, it happened last week. We had Beverly Bain on, one of the organizers right. on the show last week, yeah. Yes, if they can go on strike, there, there really needs to be the mobilization of the big battalions of organized labor and put the working class at the center of this fight. Class struggle against all oppression, uh, especially racism, that it matters how you are doing it. That, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen sort of liberals saying the solution to police violence is more black owned businesses. And I'm sorry, there aren't capitalist solutions to this. Uh, we need to be fighting for a socialist working class solution to this crisis and and trying to sort of do it within the sphere of capitalism is just going to perpetuate uh, the racism because as malcolm x said you cannot get capitalism without racism uh what about the police uh, line though that we are the working class we're a union well they do the bidding of the capitalist class right so that's uh they, they're very clearly their job is to police the working class and to keep and, and police and, and maintain those racial disparities. That is the job of the police. The police cannot be reformed. It, it, is, it is as an institution. Sometimes you can get this or that police uh, member to uh, break ranks, but as an institution, no, there's no reforming it. Yeah, I agree with everything Alex said, um, and I will add a little bit of history to that. You know, we Alex did touch on it, but the the you know it's important to constantly remember. And I used to tell my students this when, when I when I taught at Ryerson is remember the history of the police. The history of policing in, in North America goes back to slavery, and it goes back to allowing slave owners to essentially tell. The, the, the police or the, whatever they were called at the time, the, the slave hunters, to go and bring back their property and, and property being human beings. And this, this process, this, you know, having some kind of militia that did the bidding of the capitalist class, the nobility, um, has evolved into modern policing today. And that is why that we see this disparity between why, why won't police, you know, 
see what's right in front of their eyes that that, that you know this indiscriminate killing of, of of black unarmed men you know why are why are they doing this why don't they see what we see uh, is because it's it's not in their nature it, it's, it's not it's not in there it's it's not to their benefit to see what we see we see um you know we see police unions actually holding up this institution and defending it um to 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 media and and to and to and to the labor movement like they're not part of the labor movement and we actually there's a movement in in the u.s right now to actually kick police unions out of the labor movement um and there's a lot of uh really great writing happening um from from a lot of great labor reporters that are in in the u.s right now so i really would like to see that movement come here and gain some traction um the, you know the police police unions are not fighting for people they're fighting for police and the RCMP, we should, uh, part of that historical uh, uh, walk, um, it should include, of course, here in Canada, 100%. the RCMP were, were designed um, to police Indigenous. I mean, yep. that was their mm -hmm. point. Um, and they answer so, to nobody. Um, but, you know, it's really important to remember the, the RCMP answer to no one. Um, so they, they, don't, they don't have a checks and balances. Not, not that there's many checks and balances for police at any level, but RCMP really act autonomously. Um, and I mean, I, I, I would go further and say we should abolish police and completely reimagine the concept of policing. Um, there's a great indigenous uh, pol police forces that uh, have never killed anybody um, and that have never beaten anybody. Uh, and and I think that those are models that we should be we should be following. Actually, community organizations that keep people safe, uh, uh, rather than upholding capitalist classes and defending property. There's a great deal of white fragility and fear around this issue, uh, for sure. Though, uh, when you talk about this, and I and I love Sandy Hudson, who's been on the show, uh, co-founder of Black Lives Matter. When she she said, you know, why is it so difficult for us to imagine? Um, somebody who can keep the community safe without killing, <laughs> without killing black people or indigenous. I mean, why is it so difficult for us to imagine something exactly. like that? Alex, you wanted to say something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that millions of people have come to the understanding the police cannot be reformed and are supporting the call to abolish police. But you also have to understand the police are inherent to capitalism. Actually, if, if you uh, legislatively abolish the police. Well, the rich would just create armed militias to defend themselves. Yeah. You know, you go to Colombia and that exists and, uh, you know, go to rich neighborhoods, they've got their own police. So really, if you want to abolish police, you, you have to fight to abolish capitalism and the capitalist yeah. laws that the police institute. So only a socialist perspective can really abolish the police. Uh, we need a totally new society. Andrea, you wanted, you were clicking. Oh, right. just snapping. That's, I agree completely. <laughs> um, and uh, I just add to that as we, I was talking uh, last night uh, about, you know, how, how this has transpired in Latin America, how this, the, what you were just talking about, Alex. And, you know, we see in some parts of Mexico, how entire parts of, of, of the country have been ceded over to, uh, to drug cartels and, and armed gangs and effective community militias that have been created um and you know which is so different than other parts of mexico which tourists go to and are developed and and have you know a, a large majority white population living there as you know expats um in places like puerto vallarta where we have you know um a, a thriving gay community and then we have other parts of the of, of, of the country that effectively have you know been ruined by policing and by the military who have you know taken a strong arm and and have resulted in in chaos that has unfolded and so i you know that is could easily happen here could easily happen anywhere things change on a dime 
So the, the, the answer is not uh, vigilante squads and uh, armed private militia, but uh, reforming the system. Um, by the way, if you're just tuning in, you are listening, of course, The Radical Reverend Show. It is podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. And of course, um, here we are on CIUT 89.5 FM, which increasingly um, is becoming necessary uh, for just getting the facts, uh, just getting the news. Um, uh, I, I, ha I have to say, uh, and Andrew, I'm just going to give this to you again, just popped into my head. But so the news lately that CBC is going to be producing some privately funded programming. Um, <laughs> Wow, I mean that. What ha what happened there? Um, you're a journalist. What's happening mm. to journalism? Say something about journalism in this country. Oh God, journalism is in crisis, and it's been in crisis for years, right? It's it's it, journalism is. Uh, I I I'm, I'm worried increasingly about the future of Canadian journalism. It doesn't surprise me at all that that CBC is is doing is doing this, but they are really risking uh, their their public broadcaster position by doing this and just handing more ammunition to the Aaron O'Tools and the conservative who want to, you know, claw back the funding, you know, we need to have a public broadcaster. We just need to work with that public broadcaster to, to ensure that they're better. And we, CBC is a great example of, 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 of a television station that is open to change. You know, we've seen the panels uh, become more diverse. Um, it's not perfect, but it's, it's, you know, this would be a nail in the coffin for sure. Um, you know, we're, Journalism is in crisis, not because of the of, of the CBC or, or the or the lack of you know uh, podcasts available to people. It's in crisis because of money. It's in crisis because there's there's no money to pay people. Um, you know the the there's less uh, publications with an active union. Um, and even those, published, even those publications with an active union, the unions are powerless and allow, allow journalists to have their, their rights eroded and their paychecks eroded. And you know, stations and, and publications are relying more and more on freelancers who are expected to work for free. Uh, and so this has created a situation where there's many, many issues that aren't covered. You mentioned 1492 land, land back lane. There's very little coverage of this. Um, and this is a, a, a huge issue that is that is unfolding that deserves to be uh, top of mind for, for everybody living in Ontario. Um, you know, most people, I was, I was listening to a podcast actually before uh, before coming on the show today um, uh, and listening to some of the journalists who covered 1492 Landback Lane and how difficult it has been for them to get coverage in mainstream media about this issue and especially getting them getting media to cover it from the protesters point of view from the indigenous point of view um, because of the crisis of journalism. There's such lack of time to do the kind of reporting that is needed. And so instead of getting in the car and driving to the protest or taking the time to find protesters to interview them about their experience and, and the kind of um, abuse or treatment that they have experienced by police or what, what the protest is about at all, what the history is. Instead, an email just gets sent off to the band council, they get a capsule quote from what is effectively is somebody who has nothing to do with the protest and they run with it. And you know, most people, as this reporter said, got interested in this one story because of Doug Ford. And, and that one question that he was asked at the, at the press conference about it, in which he showed himself to be remarkably ignorant, uh, not, not surprising, um, about Indigenous issues. The idea that there is one law that governs all of Canada 
is false. It's absolutely false. It's, it's, there's many laws and treaties that, that govern this country. Um, and, uh, and for him to say that is, is, it speaks volumes, but it also speaks about the, the failure of media to accurately inform people, including the premier. So what we're, we're getting, where we're getting our news, of course, for most of us is not um, newspapers <clears throat> anymore, or even television news, it's online. And uh, that is problematic. Um, I did mention this movie uh, that Netflix is, is, is uh, running that I saw and that many have seen, Social Dilemma. It, to me, it was a bit problematic because uh, you had these uh, 20 to, you know, so 25 to 35 year old white, white boys <laughs> who, um, who run the tech industry um, and who are VPs and who are making all sorts of money talking about how inhumane it is, no kidding, um, and how it's allowed, you know, uh, fake news to kind of disseminate and how polarizing it's been and how little um, the owners of, of tech companies have done to stop this. In fact, they're making money from it. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and then goes on to blame users. And I was thinking, uh, you know, when I think of journalists or people who are trying to do anything, everybody has to be online these days. You can't tell users, end users to say, okay, just drop all your social media accounts, just get offline, uh, just be effective Luddites, you know, because they're using you because it's so ingrained into how we all make our livings these days. We have to be online. Um, but what is the answer to the disaster? And we, we're seeing it playing out in the streets with you know, QAnon and, and like right-wing conspiracy uh, idiocy. Uh, Alex, what do we do about the tech giants? Yeah, well, the key issue here is ownership, right? That whether it be TV media, print media, social media, they're all owned by billionaires. Right. They talk about free speech. Yeah. Free speech for those with billions of dollars to own a media empire and even the CBC. OK, it's publicly owned, but they put in a board of governors who are, are the same old plutocrats. So they uh, defend the CBC. Absolutely. But the editorial line of the CBC isn't much better than the other uh, mass media outlets. They still support the status quo. What there needs to be is uh, take so media needs to be controlled by the people not by these billionaires uh, actually trotsky advanced an idea that you make access to the media proportionate to votes and elections right uh, whether it be print or tv or radio or you know internet didn't exist back then but uh, uh there are this would bring out so many other voices, so many other voices, whether it's an indigenous voice, the workers voice, the women's voice, the immigrants voice. To actually, there, there are in journalists from uh, these communities. I am a revolutionary journalist. That is my job. I am a member of the Canadian Freelance Union. Uh, and the, these people exist, but people who are telling these stories are just surviving at the fringes and society needs to fund this journalism rather than the old failed corporate journalism that has just one message that is failing. Yeah. Tech giants, Andrea, and of course the, the fake news and the polarization that has come out of this in terms of what we see as almost a civil war situation in the United States. But talk about the tech giants. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, and I watched that 
movie yesterday. I watched The Social Dilemma. Uh, and I also read the BuzzFeed story, which is similar. It, it sort of had a, the all of these former workers, these former executives coming forward to tell, talk about the dangers of Facebook. And I think that obviously they're right. Like, like Facebook is unquestionably one of the most dangerous and uh, aggressively harmful um, things that humans have created in the last number of decades. Like it's, it's right up there with like the bomb. Like it's, it's, it's absolutely one of the most dangerous uh, inventions that we've ever created. Um, and we know this, and we, we, I mean, the people who actually created it, um, we've known for a long time the dangers of this. We've seen it, you know, um, impact elections. I mean, I think back to when, you know, when Facebook was just invented and, and you know, seeing the Arab Spring unfold. And I, I mean, I, I thought myself, you know, wow, this is a great tool. We can see how, you know, it galvanizes people and can bring activists together and, you know, organize movements and, and push incredibly uh, inspiring ideas where these ideas have never gone before. Connect people, like trans people who, who maybe and thought they free. were alone. And, and it's free. free. Yeah. But we didn't, at the time, envision the other side of that. <laughs> we didn't envision that, that this powerful tool also had the power to uh, infect the narrative to a point where it, it costs lives. I mean, we see in Myanmar the damage that, uh, that Facebook has done. For, for people in Myanmar, it's, that is the internet. And so with, with very little data or, or the lack of uh, ability to afford data, um, and they can't click on stories, um, you know, the amount of misinformation and disinformation that is that is that is pumped into these communities um, not only has brought down governments, democratically elected governments, it's it's costed lives, um, hundreds of thousands of lives. It's 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 been the impetus for genocide and and and, and mass rapes. Um, that alone should be reason to to question the the why we have this the way it is. Um, at this point, Facebook and and to a lesser extent, Twitter, um, are, they're, they're beyond just a, a, an app on your phone. They are a utility. And, and it would be, it's much easier to talk about, as you said, Sherry, um, to find a way to reform them, to make them more democratic. Why should we, you know, why shouldn't we talk about breaking up tech companies and, and, and giving back the ownership to the people? Why should one person Mark Zuckerberg or whoever, why should one person's vision, um, knowing full well the damage that, that these tech companies do, why should one person be allowed to, to, um, to have his vision strike the, strike the future of these organizations? Why can't we break them up and reform them? I mean, there's, there's, there's good to be had, but the, the bad just far outweighs the good at this moment. There was a kind of interesting anecdote that was told um, to me by a friend who's uh, far far better uh, hacker than uh, anybody else I know, who said that one of uh, his friends, um, in contrast to what Zuckerberg said, because when he was before a Senate committee, he said, well, you know, we, we just, we don't have the algorithms, we don't have the tools to, you know, kind of ferret out, uh, for example, Nazi, in this case, Nazi propaganda and just kind of ban it. And so this hacker um, friend said, and a friend of mine just developed an algorithm, just developed a tool in their spare time that could do just that from symbols shown on Facebook. So if they can do it in their spare time, Facebook with all its billions and all yep. of those people working for it can surely figure out ways. They just don't want to. They just don't um, want to. They just it's don't more profitable this way. I, actually, yeah. they, Facebook has been shutting down left-wing sites yeah, that's and true. allowing right-wing sites to continue with their hate mongering. 
That is true. Um, I, I, I really, it really does. It comes down to ownership. Like I, we shouldn't be a sort of take a Luddite position and let everybody get off social media. Uh, that's not going to work. Uh, but it's about what does social media exist for? Does it exist for selling billions of do dollars of advertising or does it exist to, to help people connect with each other? And that's, you should nationalize Facebook. Absolutely. You should nationalize mm -hmm. Google. You should nationalize Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Uh, all, all of the big tech giants, they need to be taken over and run democratically by working class people. And media needs to be run democratically by journalists and other media workers. It's interesting I mean, here, when you think about antitrust legislation. Remember that? <laughs> there's a blast of the past. Remember when there was such a thing as antitrust legislation? I, I want I mean, to move on from here, though, because you just want to make a quick point, Sherry. Sure, go we, ahead. We, we, you know, Amazon's a great point that we are, the Canadian government is actually working with Amazon to, on, on pandemic relief. Like, why wasn't that contract given to Canada Post, number one? And number two, if we're going to be working with these tech giants, it's, absolutely critical that we that we expect some major tax benefit in response but also that we that we don't allow companies to come in if they actively bust unions like that should be credit that should be contingent upon them getting the, the contract from our federal government they allow workers to organize yeah so let's talk about that because um, we are on the cusp, uh, certainly on the cusp of an American election that's coming soon. And let's start with the, 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 the Canadians scenario here. So election or not, what do you think? Andrea, I'll start with you. You're more of an I, insider. I, 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 election or not, do you, think, do you think the NDP's posturing? Do you think they'll vote with Trudeau after the throne speech? Or um, what's going on? What's really happening, do you think? I would hope that... Um depending on what's in the budget. I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear Jugmeet say he wants to see the budget first. Um, but I think that, uh, I don't think Canadians want an election. So I think that it would, but if, if there is nothing in the budget, uh, if there's no money that is going to be uh, given to a, an emergency UBI uh, or childcare, pharmacare, something, there's gotta be something, um, then yeah, the NDP should vote it down. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and if that means going to an election, then so be it. Like we can't allow this government to, to use the pandemic to, as Alex said, hand over billions of dollars to corporations and, 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 and Canadians get nothing. Canadians have to fall off that cliff, cliff and, and, and be evicted from their homes or be at the whim of, of you know, one, one person in the family scraping by on their income. That sh it should, this is not how it should be. And so if it means going to the polls, then so be it. Alex, election or not in Canada, and why? I don't think there will be, but that's because I think the NDP are selling themselves too cheap. <laughs> that, uh, actually, and that is the danger that uh, the, the NDP has been completely vague about what they're asking for and have asked for things that uh, Trudeau hasn't had any problem uh, but bending towards rhetorically. Uh, actually, the fact that the Liberals seem to have been recovering from the Wee scandal and are up in the polls means they're less likely to give reforms. That uh, tip, the, the Liberals are like piñatas. If you want to get anything out of them, you've got to keep hitting them. <laughs> and uh, and the fact and if you if you push them, yeah, you know, just like Kathleen Wynne, you know, when she was down in the polls, she was giving away uh, lots of reforms, and uh, and the minute they go up in the po polls, they go right wing. So we'll, we'll see what comes out next week. Uh, I don't know, but the the NDP has been far too moderate, and it's not they're not talking about ownership, but. Uh, CCPA, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, new study, during the pandemic, 
the richest 20 billionaires in Canada have added $37 billion to their net wealth. $37 billion. The NDP needs to be talking about taking that wealth, nationalizing, nationalization, public ownership, workers' control. The NDP is not talking about socialism. They're not talking about that. They're not talking about a different society. They're talking about tinkering at the edges, which the liberals can pretend they do the, a similar thing that the NDP is asking for, and then can steal the NDP's votes. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, to yeah. weigh in here, I don't think there's going to be an election because I don't think the polls are looking favorable to any of the opposition parties. I mean, I think it's very um, simply calculating. I think it's simply parties are looking at how are we going to win and everything else is just icing on that. Can we the only other take? fact the only other factor on that is the arrogance of liberals um, and them looking at the other parties and knowing this, knowing that the NDP federally are broke, um, knowing that the conservatives have a brand new, untested, somewhat fairly unlikable um, leader. Um, you know, strategically, if I was an advisor of the Liberal Party, this is this would be absolutely the time to strike with with a, with an election and go for a majority. But that's the arrogance of liberals. Like that's probably not what they should do. But that's probably what their strategic advisors are telling them to do. I, I just think that if the polling goes up to the degree that they can see a majority, they'll go for it. And if they can't, they won't. And it'll yeah. be that straightforward. Exactly. Aaron O'Toole, by the way, Andrew, remember, is the son of John O'Toole. Remember, the crusty old conservative at Queens Park. Anyway, it's his son. Who knew? Um, let's talk about the Americans. Uh, it's scary down there. It's scary. Whatever you think, um, it's scary. I talk to people who live in the States who are mostly expats from here, but some relatives who are Americans um, who are all saying if Trump wins, we're leaving, things like this. Um, I, I mean, but it's very, it's very polarized, very scary. Um, one of the, the people in my congregation who was a strategist, Lefty down there said the first time he's hearing people who would never consider owning a gun thinking about getting their license um, because the streets are, are being filled with right-wing militia. I mean, like it's, it, so what are we looking at? Are we looking at, it doesn't matter, Biden wins or Trump wins, are we looking at a kind of civil war situation? What do you think is going on, Alex, in the States? Well, incredible polarization. I, we should, and Trump is just pour, pouring gasoline on every fire. He's desperately trying to create conflict, but he's got to be very careful what he wishes for. Very careful what he wishes for, because these right-wing militia, they exist, but they, they're in the hundreds and the thousands at most. The overwhelming opinion of, of American people is actually towards the left. And these right-wing militia could end up sparking up a much more uh, radical movement on the left. You've already got the Black Lives Matter movement. But again, the question is the working class, bringing in working class people. In fact, Trump tried to start up a big fight in Portland and he ended up sparking off a even bigger uh, working class movement, you know, mums and dads, you know, dads with leaf blowers and uh, lines of mums uh, that, and then uh, Trump was forced to retreat uh, with his uh, tail between his legs. So yes, there's going to be incredible polarization, but we, we shouldn't just say, oh no, terrible uh, right-wing militia. There are big forces on the left uh, that, uh, and, and we shouldn't uh, overplay the danger from the right. But, but again, and I, I want to push, uh, push us, you know, all of us on this. 
Um, certainly, Trump has a lot of working class support too, um, simply if you look at the class dynamic. Andrea, what do you think is going to happen in the States? And, uh, and is it as scary as it looks? It's a, I, I'm terrified. I mean, I, I have this like, you know, overwhelming feeling of dread uh, and which is just, you know, this is, this is always how I feel before an, an American election. <laughs> but I, I, I agree with Alex that I think that we are, you know, I think these, these militia groups are, are, you know, really itching for, for, for a fight. And I think that, you know, we're very quickly barreling to seeing them barrel towards a, um, a civil war scenario um, where there are, you know, factions of, of the U.S. that are effectively policing you know, being policed by uh, policing the crowds by themselves, going to protests and, you know, with their with their guns. And we're already seeing that. We've already seen people die because of this. Um, you know, this is this is the beginning of what effectively could be, you know, the fall of civilization in the U.S., the fall of democracy in the U.S. That's how big this is. That's how serious it is. Um, and I don't think that people and, and especially the media in the U.S. are taking it as seriously as they should. You know, we you know, this is fascism it's a fascist coup that you know we're already seeing trump saying that he's that he probably won't leave office or he'll call the, the election into question you know who who will be defending you know who will be defending democracy if that happens um will you know this will play out in the streets and it will be bloody um i'm i'm really concerned to, to see the aftermath of this election uh, and god forbid he wins again and and what that means for the climate what that means for the future of humanity what that means for for for, for what that means for the future frankly um and it's a, i think it's a disaster all around uh, just in terms of mainstream media south of the border, why, oh, why um, are they giving him so much air time again? Um, Money. There were, there were situations, as, but there were situations where they're, they're literally the journalists are risking their lives going to his rallies because nobody's wearing a mask. And I'm thinking, why are you going? Just radio silence on this man. Don't, don't put the microphone anywhere near anybody who supports Trump. But you're saying money. Like, why? It's just because he sells, it's good for ratings? Is that yeah, it? I think that conflict. The conflict but that, that in itself is kind of terrifying, really. Oh, 100%. Yeah. But, you know, seeing uh, CNN and MSNBC particularly uh, send their reporters, like you said, to these rallies uh, and talk to Trump supporters, ask them their opinion, as if it matters. Like, wh why do we care what white supremacists think of the 1619 Project? Like, who cares? Why are we doing this? Why are we feeding this beast? You know, because they want it pay, it, 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 it's financially incentive for them to see that conflict play out on screen, to see those, you know, um, aggressive streeters where people, uh, where they're presented with a question by the reporter and then it launches into a big, a, a, a big fight. Those, I think, are th that much like watching Trump's, you know, rallies unfold, that is dollars in the bank because it pays for advertising. Okay, Alex, you get the last word on this. Is this a revolutionary situation in the States if Trump refuses to go or if Biden wins and his uh, supporters refuse to let him go? Um, uh, is this, you know, this kind of turn to, I mean, we've seen historically capitalism in its last, it, you know, sort of not just its last gasp, but one of its gasps tends to go fascist. Um, is that what's yeah. happening there? What do you think, Alex? Well, well, in a way, I think this is the beginning of the beginning of the American Revolution that desperately needs organization to be successful uh, from a socialist perspective. But we do, we do have to be very careful about using words like fascism, that yes, there are fascist gangs, these militias are fascists, uh, but they really, there's like a few hundred or thousand of them 
uh, we shouldn't overplay that. There, should, there used to be regular uh, rallies of 20,000 fascists at, uh, in New York in the 1930s. It hasn't reached that level, and you wouldn't consider the United States of the 30s a, a fascist state. That what there is is incredible conflict, but the the, the worker fascism really is built upon the defeat of working class organization and the workers haven't even had the first chance of fighting back and and overthrowing this regime so whether it is trump or uh, biden the there's going to be incredible workers movements in the years to come and and you need good socialist organization to help the working class and all the oppressed uh, be successful well, maybe we'll leave on that positive note. Thank you so much uh, to my guests, Andrew Houston, columnist, activist, journalist, and Alex Grant, also a journalist with Fight Back. Uh, and to all of you out there in listener land, love to hear your comments. Until the next time on The Radical Reverend Show. Bye, all. <laughs>